0: To the word. Father, your word is alive, it is active, it imparts life, it teaches us, it corrects us, it reproves us, and it provides us instruction in righteousness. So Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit, who inspired and led those human authors, in recording these words, we pray that you might, Father, make the Holy Spirit, through your Holy Spirit, <clears throat> bring alive this passage of Scripture to us as we think and interact with your thoughts and your message to us today. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be open and receptive to the things that you want to teach us, and that most of all, we might appreciate Christ all the more as we look into your word. We pray in his name, Amen. Just curious, have you received any bad news lately? Surely we all have our own uh, amount of, good, of bad news. I know in our, my life uh, we've had a number of disappointing reports uh, recently. I had a phone call from my physician's office several months ago informing me that they no longer accept my health insurance. And then I got a call Again, very recently, as many of you know, from someone informing me that my dearly loved father-in-law died with no warning, no indication he was sick in any way or in distress. Uh, I told you not too long ago that I received in the mail some bad news uh, with a photograph of my car and informing me that I had a particular corner there at 495 and, and or on Concoma Avenue had, uh, had an infraction on a stoplight. And I need to send a very generous donation of $80 to the county of Suffolk County there. And then more recently I've had a number of lunches and phone calls and emails from people who have informed me due to their moving, due to their uh, being bent out of shape or whatever, the various reasons why that they are going to leave our church. So I've had a number of things of bad news. I'm sure you have had a number of instances in where you have heard a report of some bad news. And some bad news, we would call it and put it in the category, it's disappointing. It's not on the level of what we would call disastrous, which is some bad news to us. It feels like it's disastrous. But my question to us as we think about the receiving of bad news sometimes is, how do we respond to the bad news when it comes? For some people, I guess it is a practice in today's world is that we post it. We just sort of put it out there, and this is what just happened, or I just learned this, or, you know, everybody else now can know what's going on regarding this bad news. Others of us are prone to grumble about it, and so we murmur either to ourselves or whoever's around us. We draw attention to the unfairness of it all. Others of us make the people around us aware of what's been going on with our difficulty And doing so, we are trying to win their sympathies so that we can pretty much host a pity party. Or some of us, I would imagine, tend to probably deep down, maybe we don't admit this, but there might be some of us who are sort of angry at God. We're sort of frustrated at God. the, The resentment that we feel toward Him for something else previously that has been bad news, we feel like now has just been piled on top of that. And so now, our resentment toward God has deepened and the number of situations we sort of just see them as getting higher and higher and therefore we're left with a sense of, oh, don't know what to do with it. We sort of turn away from God. I would like to suggest to us that how you respond to bad news reveals a lot about what's going on inside of you. You see, our response to tragedy, our response to trouble can be, not always, but it can be a barometer of what's going on in our hearts. And my goal this morning is to try to encourage us to think through the reaction that we read about, about a guy named Nehemiah, who when he heard bad news, it was a pretty bad report, the report he received was pertaining to a situation back in his homeland in Jerusalem. He was hundreds and hundreds of miles away in the kingdom of Persia, and he knew that the wall around Jerusalem, his homeland, was lying in ruins. It had been attacked by a foreign nation. It had been left in rumbles, and therefore his fellow Jews, who had remained there and who were living there, they virtually had no protection from marauders. They had no protection from invaders and people who were uh, coming into that area. So they, these fellow Uh, Believers of his, they were also distressed, they were vulnerable, they felt defeated. And so Nehemiah gets this bad news, and I want us to pick up the story about Nehemiah in chapter 1 of the book named After Him. Nehemiah chapter 1, if you have your way there, find your way there. It's in page, in your pew Bible, 579. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, when I was in Susa, the capital of Persia, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men who, from Judah, Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there, that is, the people who have remained there, in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness of those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. and We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you did command your servant Moses. Remember the word which you did command your servant Moses, saying, "If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and you keep the commandments and, I, and do them, though, you, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them there from there." and will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are your servants and your people, whom you did redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. Verse 11. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today. And grant him compassion before this man. That's the end of his prayer. This man is what? Well, next next little phrase. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. This morning I want us to think about this text of scripture and look at Nehemiah's response. Because Nehemiah did not turn away from God in the midst of hearing about bad news. He turned himself toward God. He opened his heart toward God. And in this response, he began to pray about the bad news. And his response, I believe, was rooted in his belief that all of life, all of the matters that pertain to everything that comes into his life, all the news he hears, whether good or bad, every situation that he faces... All of it, he said, I think from Nehemiah's point of view, all of that pertains to God because God is the sovereign king over everything. And so I want to ask the question, what does God want us to learn about himself? What does he want us to learn about our own hearts regarding this passage and the response that Nehemiah made in prayer? Well, first of all, I'd like to say that responding to bad news with prayer will clearly reveal what we treasure What we treasure. So here is Nehemiah receiving this report from the team that had been there far away in Jerusalem, and they had now come back. And when he heard the report, his heart was gripped with grief. He was distressed because he heard of the distress of his fellow Jews. And that's only the beginning, though, because as you keep reading the first chapter of Nehemiah, which we just did, He was clearly, Nehemiah is not just distressed merely over the hardships and the difficulties and the trials and reproach that had fallen upon these inhabitants of Jerusalem. But he's looking at it now from the fact that God himself was being dishonored. Because this is the city that God was going to say, I'm going to put my name and my reputation and my honor is going to be on display in this city. And so it is clear to me that as long as Jerusalem was laid waste, Nehemiah was gripping, gripping with, he was grappling with the reality that God's fame and God's reputation, God's name is now sort of being trampled in the mud among all the other people in that vicinity. And so his response to the prayer overflowed from a heart that evidenced the fact that Nehemiah deeply cared about God and he deeply cared about God's honor. God's honor. You know, our reactions to the things that happen in life are rooted to what we truly treasure. And Nehemiah's heart here, I believe, is an example of someone who deeply was moved because he cared deeply about God. And he cared deeply about other people, his fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. He cared about what God valued. And so his tears and his fasting were a response of a man who loved God and who treasured the chosen people of God. And so his burden was actually the burden that God had. Now, some of us, if we treasure comfort, may find ourselves reacting quite strongly Whenever we're called to suffer. For example, some people, if they break their fingernail, their week is ruined. Have you ever seen that? Oh, it's broken. It's like, oh my goodness, we've just had a crisis. Other people, if somebody ignores them, somehow they get a cold shoulder from somebody, person didn't speak to them, that person whose approval they crave and value and treasure, then the person who gets the cold shoulder is what? Inconsolable. They can never be comforted. They, don't, they can't seem to, to make sense of all that and they just sort of crumble. Or if we're a person who treasures control, wanting to have control over our lives and everything that happens, it's clear that a person who has that kind of treasure in their heart they're going to be filled with mourning and significant pain if our plans and our agenda is hijacked and things don't go the way we expected them to go. What is it that we're treasuring in our heart oftentimes is revealed when we get bad news. And so, my question that I, as I've thought and meditated over this text, is I'm asking myself, how is it that Nehemiah got to the point where his heart? was so deeply concerned about God and God's people, and that he's concerned about God's honor and God's name. How is it that he got to the point where that became such a significant part of what he treasured and and really valued? And I guess to some extent we could say that his heart had been shaped by his own experience and his own understanding personally of God's grace and God's love. Nehemiah's heart was deeply moved by the mercy and the long-suffering that God had shown to him personally and to the people of God. He had come to appreciate God's compassion. He had come to appreciate God's concern for his own children. And he had lain over time as he meditated on God and who he is and what God had done a time and time again for his people and and how he had extended such undeserved benefits and blessings to his people. You know, his view of God, verse 5 of chapter 1, was God clearly is a great God. He's an awesome God. He's an amazing God. No wonder, then, he longed to see God be appreciated by other people because he had learned to appreciate God and knew enough about him that his heart was just amazed by God, filled with wonder. His heart was deeply touched when God's fame was being dishonored and and somehow trashed and tarnished. And so his heart had learned to treasure God as he knew more and more of His grace. For those of us who have ever known marriage, if you treasure your spouse, your concerns will eventually begin to include the things that they are concerned about. For example, my wife, I'm so glad, 34 years ago, entered into my family. We've seen this now happen with our kids, where a person who had nothing to do with our family for all these years, they sort of all of a sudden now they they become a member of your family. And so my wife entered into my family and became a member of my family, and I have always appreciated the fact that she has welcomed and now actually embraced her in-laws as people that she cares about and views them as a, a father and mother figure in her own life. Now, my father is, is in heaven, no longer here, but my mother uh, is still here. And when my father died a number of years ago, my dear wife joined me and the rest of our family and dropped everything she was doing and came down and we all gathered and attended a memorial service for him. And since that time, as my mother has continued on in her widowhood and lived so many miles away from me here in West Virginia. She has made a number of times of the trip, the 10-hour car trip down there, where she's flown down a couple of times uh, by herself to take care of my mother when she was in need of care and assistance. And what amazingly it makes me appreciate her is that my family has become her family. My concerns have become Her concerns. And in just a small way, that's sort of an example of what spiritually happens when when we embrace and when we come to God and we claim Him as our God, we come to Him in faith, we come to Him surrendering to Him, we, we come acknowledging our need for Him, then we take on the things that He's burdened about, the things that He values, the things that He longs for, are things that we now begin to become longing for and valuing and concern for ourselves. Would it be fair to say that you have a burden on your heart for the things that God is burdened for? Does your heart have room in it for a longing for the kind of things that God has a priority for that you now sort of want to say, that is becoming more and more of a priority in my life? I'd like to encourage you to join with me in giving some thought to that in the weeks ahead to say is there something that i'm concerned that as god looks in my life or as he looks in the life of our church he looks into some of the things that we know full well are not going the way maybe god would have desired to see them go that that's become a concern of my heart i'm going to pray about this matter it's a matter that i'm just not going to forget about and say oh, i'll think about it for one day sunday but i'm going to really begin to think more and more and spending time meditating and asking God to begin to do something about a situation that I'm aware he's concerned about and share the kind of burden that he must have about that same situation. My friend, you'll never start doing that until you've gotten to the point where God becomes your treasure and your prize. The one that you really appreciate, the one you love, the one who has the deepest sense of incredible value to you. that you just realize I can't live without you. You are the one who has my everything. If that is where your heart becomes more and more inclined, then it's not going to be too surprising that you'll begin to take those things on and say, Lord, I'm burdened and concerned about it because I'm worried about how this is impacting you and what you want to see happen here. And so perhaps that's really where we ought to begin. Rather than try to tick off 16 things we ought to do is just say, Lord, work in my heart such that I'll begin to treasure you more than anything. It's a good prayer to pray, isn't it? I would think so, especially when you break your fingernail, or when someone gives you the cold shoulder, or when you get other forms of bad news, is to say, first of all, what do I treasure the most no matter what? It's God. Secondly, I'd like us to think about what it means to respond to bad news with prayer. It would oftentimes I suggest to you it would reveal to us our true theology. Depending on how we react to the bad news that comes into our life, it says a lot about what you truly believe with regard to God. And that's what theology means. It's the study of God. So here's Nehemiah. He gets this bad news He begins to pray. And I find it interesting that as he begins to pray, I think it's clear that Nehemiah knew from the first moment he heard the news he realized there's only so much he could do about that problem. Even though he's the cupbearer, even though he has a position of high influence and and, uh, privilege, um, having exposure to the king, he can actually speak the king, and he knows the king personally, the king knows him. Yet I believe that he was very clear in his mind that God has unlimited power and unlimited might to bring to this situation. And he was very clear aware of the fact that he had very little that he could do to help change the situation that was happening. Did you notice, if you will, at the end of the chapter, verse 10 of chapter 1, he talks about the God's servants. He reminds him of the people of the former generation of Moses' time. Your servants, your people, whom you did redeem by what? Your great power and your strong hand. He goes back to realizing... God, you're the one who did the impossible. You you brought your people out of bondage in Egypt and did it in a way that was just clearly something that only God miraculously brought about. And so he turns to God admitting his own weaknesses, admitting his own inabilities, admitting that he desperately needed God's help in this situation. It's a good place to begin, isn't it? When you hear bad news, when you hear a situation, when you're aware of something that's really quite troubling is to begin to say, God, I need help. I need help. Or to begin to say, we as a church, we need help. It's a good place to begin our prayer. Because the intervention that comes is coming from a mighty God, a powerful God, and it's a reminder that if He doesn't show up, we've got nothing to bring to the equation. Now, there are things that we can do and ought to do, and Nehemiah gets involved, but for his involvement, it's nothing's going to really happen unless God also gets involved. That's what Jesus said, didn't he? John 15. He told his followers that they were unable to do anything of spiritual significance apart from Christ. Without me, you can do nothing, he said. Now, there's a lot of things we can do, but they won't be very effective. And they won't really accomplish God's plan and God's agenda apart from his help. And so here's Nehemiah. He has an accurate understanding of God, God and his adequacy, God and his tremendous amount of resources he brings to any situation. And he's also aware of his own inadequacy. And I would suggest to you it's the combination of those two, the adequacy of God and the inadequacy that we have to do anything of spiritual significance in our world You bring those things together, and those are the vital, necessary ingredients that bring about the real dynamic of fervent prayer, and that is a heart of humility. A heart of humility. I think that's our first point. A heart of humility. Humility that leads us to pray. Humility that says, I need help. There's a quote in your notes there from Cyril Barber, I thought was so interesting how he just, Uh, summarizes very succinctly that people who are self-sufficient do not pray. They don't even take the time, they don't even ever speak to God, they don't cry out to God. Why? They're just talking to themselves. They're thinking only about their own uh, abilities, their own plans, their own agenda. The self-satisfied will not pray. Why? Well, they have no knowledge of their need. Things are going just fine. Thank you very much. I can handle it. And the self-righteous, they cannot pray. Why is that? Well, they have no basis on which to approach God. They're approaching God on their own goodness, on their own abilities, on their own keeping the rules and doing everything right. So an accurate view of God will really help us gain an accurate view of ourselves, which then gives us further reason as to why prayer really makes sense to As a right response when we face bad news. Now, Nehemiah, I would say, is familiar with God. He was familiar with God's ways. And because of his familiarity with God and his ways, I find it very interesting that having begun to pray, he didn't stop praying. Now, have we all not been there? Prayed about something on day one? Day two, we may have prayed about it again, perhaps. And maybe at the end of day three, oh, yeah, got to pray about that thing. And after a while, it just sort of falls off the radar. Well, I don't have time to go into this too much detail here, but it is clear in the text of Scripture here. If you look at verse 6 of chapter 1, Nehemiah, he prayed not just in the morning, but he also prayed at night. Prayed in a sense throughout the day, day and night, he says, verse 6. And then if you read in verse 1 of chapter 1, that he began to pray when the news came to him, in what they call the month of Chislef, which is really November, December, you should think of that. The end of the calendar year for us, in, in our calendar. And the permission from the king did not come, and we learn later on, until the month of Nisan, which is the month of March, April. So if you look at November, November, December, and then March, April, that's the period of time in which he's praying and fasting and crying out to God. It's longer than you think. He prayed about the concern over a period of four to five months. And isn't it interesting how Jesus urges his disciples when it comes to pray? He says, at all times we ought to pray and not to lose heart, not to give up. Implying what? That God doesn't always respond the first moment we cry out in prayer. He doesn't always answer that prayer in a time frame that we wish he would. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, or also in Luke chapter 11, he says, keep on asking, right? He says, keep on knocking, keep on seeking, and you will what? You'll be given to you, it will find, you will, it will be opened unto you. Paul knew that as he admonished the believers there in Ephesus, he says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions, keep on praying. And then he says, of course, pray continually, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 pray and pray and keep on praying and then keep on praying again. Don't give up. If we are find that we're still broken down, things are still not repaired, things are still in disarray, if your bad news still seems to be heavily weighing you down, with it is bad news, and you keep praying and you're seeking God's help, may I just remind us here through Nehemiah's example, it doesn't mean that God is not listening to us. It doesn't mean that God is doing this. You know, can't be bothered by all of your many words. It's not the picture you should have at all in your mind. God works in His time according to accomplish His will in the way that He sees best according to His wisdom. And so His delays are for a reason. Came across this quote. It's not in your notes, but I thought it was quite helpful. By John Blanchard, he says this: "Waiting for, uh, sorry, waiting for an answer to prayer, is often part of the answer." I'm gonna read that again. That's good. I didn't write it. It's not my quote. Waiting for an answer to prayer, is often a part of the answer that God has to our prayer. So waiting is something you should expect to happen when you get bad news. Why? Because God's trying to teach us to persist. Persist in prayer. And that's point number two. Or point B or whatever under point number two. So persistence in prayer comes because I have an understanding of how God works. That he doesn't just, like a genie, give us what we ask for immediately, or like a vending machine, doot, doot, doot. Boom, I get out what I put in there. I want it now. God has his own reasons of why he waits. We must patiently keep asking him and trust that he is at work. May I suggest another motivation that Nehemiah had to turn to God in prayer when he heard all this bad news is because Nehemiah knew the story behind the current story. Follow me here. Nehemiah knew that all, number one, he knew that all this brokenness, all this destruction that had occurred in the city of Jerusalem where God's glory and God's fame and God's reputation had all been made known to the world at that time with all of the blessings there from years earlier. He knew that all this mistreatment of God's people was due to the sins of God's people. He knew that there was a long history of of warnings and And uh, prophets saying, listen, you've got to turn. You've got to listen to God's ways. You've got to deal with the things going on. And they wouldn't do it. And so this is what resulted from it. He knew that. He also knew that God was not the author of evil. That makes a huge difference in how you interpret the news that's coming to you. Nehemiah knew the story behind the story. In the midst of all the bad news, in the midst of all the brokenness, in the midst of all the betrayal that he had gone through and all the people of God had gone through, one truth remained clear to him and to those who really know God, and that is what? God is good. God is good. Even when you're getting bad news, God is good. He's not the source or the cause of evil. And Nehemiah learned his theology by reviewing those redemptive, uh, the record of redemptive history. He went through the various parts of Scripture that he had at the time. He began to go through and remember that God does not forsake his people. Look at chapter 9. Just slip over to chapter 9 in the same book there, Nehemiah. And notice verses 17 and verses 19. It's a whole long account of which he talks about, and God did this, and God did this, and God did this, and then the people did this, and just walked away from them, turned away, rebelled, or whatever. And so, uh, verse 17, "...and so the people of God refused to listen. They did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them, and they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness." Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. That's the story behind the story. <laughs> if all you hear when you're hearing the bad news, all oh, the people are sitting in the ruins, and oh, it's terrible, oh, God, how could you do that to them? That's the conclusion that we often draw. But Nehemiah knew the story. He knew, no, there's a long history here of their failing and their, their rebellion and their foolish choices on and on and on, and on, but God never forsook them. Look down verse uh, 18, when they made themselves a calf of molten, molten metal, this is an idol, and he said, this is your God who brought us out of Egypt and they committed great blasphemies. You, in your great compassion, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire at night to light them away way in which they should go. He talked about, you didn't forsake them. You did not give up on them. You did not turn your back on them completely and totally reject them. So I would just like to remind us as we hear of these truths that God deals faithfully despite the failings of his people. And if you look at chapter 9, verse 33, we see another reminder of this. You are just in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. I think that's one of the key verses of the entire book that holds the whole thing together because that's the gospel. (laughs) That's the good news. Because all we see in our lives are various ways in which we've failed and fallen short, and we see more clearly as time goes on the faithfulness of our God. He keeps His promises. And no matter how bad things get, If you look at verse 37 of chapter 9, no no matter how bad things get, it's abundant, verse 37, it's abundant produces for the kings whom you have set over us. You have set over us kings because of our sins and over our cattle as they please, and we're in great distress. He says the kings you've put over us is part of your doing. Meaning what? You're sovereign. You're in charge of the whole thing. I would suggest to you one of the reasons you can keep on praying is because you know that God does not forsake His promises and God is sovereign and in control, even though it doesn't look that way. Other authors of Scripture have taken the same affirmations, same things they know about God, they've learned about God, and they have gone through their own times of bad news and other periods of time in redemptive history. And you, so you have... Here's Jeremiah sitting among the ruins in Jerusalem when it took place, when it went down, when the walls were actually still smoldering from the fire and there's just ruin everywhere. People are just dead bodies everywhere. It's horrible. It's like a 9-11. And what do we read in that text? Lamentations chapter 3. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. Great is God's faithfulness. In the middle of what? Bad news. He still knew that to be true. It is Nahum who says in chapter 1, verse 7 of that little prophet's book, he says, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. What is that saying? He knows the story behind the story. He doesn't get lost in the middle of all the bad news that oftentimes comes. One other thing I want to add to this particular reflection on Nehemiah's response is to take a moment and think about, in his response to God and turning to God, he did not hesitate to admit his own sins and the sins of his people. He was absolutely assured of God's gracious dealings with him and with repentant sinners. And if we really know the gospel if we really understand what Christ has done for us, if we understand that Christ has kept the law perfectly, that Christ has died for lawbreakers like you and me, and that the resurrection of Christ was the clear evidence of the fact that that payment is sufficient to cover us and fully atone for our sins, then therefore we can, and it's it's really something uh, that we are welcome to do, is we can actually confess and admit our failings to God. We can actually be honest and say, Lord, you know, I really have sinned here. I really dropped the ball. It was not a good response. I realized, wow, that was really, that was against your, your laws. Prayers where we confess our sins assumes that in doing that kind of a prayer, we are confident that God is gracious and God is forgiving. Otherwise, why confess them? That's why he's confessing them. He's convinced that God is gracious and God's forgiving. He doesn't approach God in a flippant manner. He doesn't ignore all the reasons as to why things are so broken down. He's sensitive to the fact that he has sinned, his people have sinned. All the brokenness around them is an evidence of the fact that there is a lot of brokenness in ways we've offended God. And so God then welcomes him to come and says, come on in and let's now talk honestly about what's really going on here. And God, therefore, I think, always welcomes specific confession of sin, not excuses for sin. It's a big difference. Too often we're saying, I got six reasons as to why I said that the other day. I was tired. You said this. The other thing happened to me. Somebody cut me off on the road to the way home. And, and we've got 16 reasons as to why I just sinned. No, the sin is. Because I have to own up to the fact that that's how I felt the moment because things weren't going my way. I just want to add another comment here as God is dealing with my heart here, as I deal through this text and think about a situation here. There's a danger that when we go through times of destruction and pain and when relationships have crumbled in a church, that it's a possibility that we ourselves can become a people who ourselves are embittered and resentful toward others who may have left us. Or it could be even on the other hand, other hand too, people who resent, filled with resentment and, and uh, embitterness as they've walked away from us. And it's crucial that we humble ourselves before the Lord and cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we have to come come together On the foundation, it says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that we see ourselves as all desperately in need of a Savior. (laughs) That is the gospel. We fall into the category of being those who desperately need somebody to rescue us from our own sinful heart and choices and attitudes and actions. That we are people who break the covenant, but thankfully God does not forsake us. And the gospel is such a great comfort when we confess sin. We need to keep reminding ourselves, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful, He is righteous and just, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not some, not a few, not occasional, all. We're reminded that we have not received what we deserve. And I think Nehemiah had that perception as he heard that news, as he realized, oh, this is worse than I imagined it to be. It's still this bad after all this time he's thinking. I think when he hears that, he's also saying to himself, I'm still convinced we have not received what we really deserve. God has showered us with grace and mercy. And because of the gospel of grace, we can have confidence in the, all, all the confidence in the world that we can approach God no matter how bad it gets and no matter how bad we have gotten and no matter how failing how many ways in which we have failed god we can still have the confidence to come to him through jesus christ who ever lives to make intercession for his saints we can draw near with confidence to our gracious god to our gracious king And it says in the scriptures, Hebrews chapter 4, 16, and we will receive his mercy. We will what? We will find his grace to draw upon when we need it. And oftentimes when you hear bad news, guess what you need? You don't need a lecture. You need grace and mercy. You need to know that God is listening to you. You need to know you have a Savior who has died for you and who lives for you now. Jesus, indeed, is that sinless Savior. You know, it's so easy to give mental assent to spiritual truths in our minds. We can walk out of here today and we say, you know, I know I should be praying more. And I know, yes, it would be good if I would sit down and be honest with God and confess sins. Be honest with Him. And to admit that God is good in the midst of all the bad news. To admit also that God is in control, that He is gracious. And that he is the one who can bring to bear resources in the midst of our needs, challenges, and problems. But it's another thing to act on those beliefs in our heads. It's one thing to think it in your mind. It's another thing to own it in your heart and live it out, right? That's an amen right there, folks. I'll tell you right now, that was an amen. All right. For instance, for instance, years ago, we were blessed to spend a day with the Tedesco family on their nice sailboat. And we, we went from South Shore, across the bay, to Fire Island. It was a slow go. We slowly made our way over there. Not much wind that day, uh, that particular time of the day. And on the way back, it's, uh, our kids are with us. They're all elementary age kids, you know. So we're all just sailing there. Nice, nice, nice day. Beautiful weather. On the way back, the wind's picking up a little bit. And I had told our kids, David told the kids, uh, that listen, th- there's a part of this boat that goes way down in the water. You can't see it. It's very, very heavy. And because it's very heavy, the boat's not going to tip over. So you don't need to be worried about that. It may lean a little bit. Everything's okay. We know that in our heads. We made that very clear. So we're on the way back. Wind picks up. And sure enough, sails are full of wind. And here we go. It is now starting to lean, and everybody's doing one of these numbers, you know, and holding on, and I can look in my kids' faces, and what are they doing? Are they having fun? I'm enjoying it. It was wonderful. I love having some breeze, and we're actually cruising along, you know? And I look back at the kids, and they're like... <laughs> they're like hanging off for dear life, like, Dad, would you get me off this boat? We're gonna drown. It's over. And I realized to myself, am I not like that, spiritually speaking? I know a lot of things in my head. But how I respond to those truths in everyday life oftentimes reveals what I really believe. And that is I really don't take God at His word sometimes. I just refuse to really submit to it. And I would suggest to you that in this text, God is calling us to say, do you believe I am a gracious God, a powerful God, a good God, a God who's in control, a God who can come to your aid? He says, well, then seek me out. Pray. Turn to me and confess your sins. Here's three things I'd like to suggest are helpful takeaways of today's message. A, B, and C. How simple is that? Not in your notes. If you want them, you've got to write down whatever you want to do. First thing, A, ask. Ask. We've got to ask God. We've got to say, Lord, help. We've got to speak to Him. We've got to spend time with Him. We've got to carve out time to pray. I think of the words from the John Newton hymn, Come, My Soul, Your Suit Prepares. The name of the hymn. Listen to his stanza here. He says this, You are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. What's your view of God? Ask Him seek him out pray secondly a then b be confident be confident that god is good be confident that god is in control be confident that god is gracious that he keeps his covenant the covenant he's sealed with the blood of jesus christ that he forgives those who come confessing their sins humbly and he has a heart that's inclined towards people in compassion you say oh i have such a hard time believing that then get in the word and keep reading it and say lord Drive this home in my heart till I believe it. Because that is what keeps you from praying, is because you have a view of God that says, well, he's disinterested, he's part of the problem, and I don't think things have spun out of control, and what's the use in asking him? He can't do anything anyway. It's because of our bad theology. We don't believe who God truly is and who he's revealed himself to be. So be confident. God is good in control and gracious. And then lastly, A, B, and C, Confess. Confess any and all known sin. Humbly acknowledge to God, Lord, I've got to take a moment to take stock of my own life here and say, Lord, what does you want to do with me? What do you want me to, to, to be honest about and admit to you that is clearly an area that of my life that is not in right? Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you. Wow, what would happen if that was your prayer this week? Lord, point out anything in me that would offend you. How are you going to know what offends God? You've got to get in the Word. The more you read the Word, the more God says, hey, 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 that's what I've been wanting to try to get your attention about. The more you hear His will, hear His His desires, hear what He really longs to see happening in your life. Lord, lead me in the path of everlasting life. Don't need to say more. ABC. Let's stick with the basics. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you that you welcome sinners. You're a God who has everything to offer to those of us who have so little. Thank you that you have, Lord, endless resources Thank you that your view of us is that you do not just give up with us and turn away from us and uh, give us the wagging finger and sort of tell us all of our faults and then say enough of you. We thank you, Lord, that you are a merciful and gracious God, that you view us compassionately and that you extend to us endless grace and mercy again and again and again. How we thank you for the gospel and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, you would convince us of the truths of who you are this week as we try to get down to the real basics, Lord, of dealing with whatever form of bad news we are dealing with in our lives. Lord, bring us to the point where we are willing to see the, what's not right in us and to really begin to have your view of that in us and then to turn to Christ and know what it is to be fully forgiven, fully restored, and fully cleansed. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.